Go with your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. While you're turning there, um, in the bulletin, there is a book review. This is the book that's reviewed. It's a secular book. Um, it's dealing with, uh, it's written by a, a child psychologist. I know, you're already stunned that I'm recommending a book by a psychologist, but nonetheless, uh, she's got her head screwed on straight. Um, but it's dealing with uh, a lot of the political, moral issues of the transgender thing. Uh, the reason why I'm recommending it, because I think not only does she explain things really well, but you may be talking to somebody uh, or know someone who's this has been said to them, they have a, a daughter who's 14 or 15 and suddenly declares that she's a boy and, uh, you know, individuals are, these individuals there are against it and, and, you know, they say, well, I know that's wrong, you know, the Bible says it's wrong and so the individual comes back with this. Well, you know that if, your if you don't uh, affirm what your daughter is feeling and going through, there's a good chance she's going to kill herself. So you've got to ask yourself a question. Would you rather have a dead daughter or a living son? And people, they, it's like you take the rug out from the person. They don't know what to say. How do you respond to that? Well, first of all, that's not true. That's the first thing. That's, that's rhetoric that's used. It's used very commonly. She explains where that comes from and what is the truth behind suicide percentages of those who, what they call transition and those who don't. Another argument's made is that it's the consensus of most doctors and most psychologists that you want to affirm this, this, this uh, the, the surgery and the blockers, the puberty blockers, all that, to help them out. And, that, and so it's just the overwhelming consensus. That's, that's, that's not true. Right? That's, that's a lie. So she's gives, she gives you the facts concerning that, helping you to think through that. There are those who will quote studies saying that we should do and deal with these issues in a particular way. Uh, people misrepresent studies all the time on purpose. It's to deceive. So you need to be aware of these things. Uh, I know this sounds kind of weird um, in a sense if you think about it, but if you're a homeschool parent or your kids go to public school, it kind of covers the gamut. Uh, but you need to be aware of what they're going to, what, especially if they go to public school, what they're going to hear. We have it. There's a way to be able to respond to these things. There is a biblical way. I'm finishing up a book now that I'll be telling you about that will kind of complete this. But we need to have the facts. We need to understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, and what, what really is at stake. And so it's just really well done. Um, and so I just highly recommend if, you're, if you have interest or you, know, you, you engage in conversations at times or you just want to understand these moral issues that we're facing uh, because again, more and more, it's what it is causing splits in churches and denominations. There are people who are wrongly dividing the word of God, but the, but the language they use or the reasoning they use comes from the world. That, well, certainly God is love and you don't want your child to commit suicide. And to, well, no, I, I, I don't want my child to commit suicide. Well, I do know that God is love, but, and they'll say there's no but. Well, yeah, there is. And so, um, pick it up. I think I'm convinced that you will not regret reading that. And then when I tell you about the next book in a couple of weeks, um, not that it's going to be exhaustive, but it will help us to understand how we can think about these things biblically. Because again, it is also being used to attack Christianity, to attack the Bible, to attack the absolutes of Scripture, to attack really the way we think philosophically. It, it, it's even against logic as well as actually being against science. 
And so we're standing on, on the right thing. We need to be uh, loving and kind, absolutely. Uh, but we can stand against things that are wrong and things that are destroying lives and destroying families. Uh, and so that's, that's why I'm throwing that out there for you to look at and think about and maybe perhaps pick up and read and help you and you're thinking through that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we are so grateful for your word and again for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, that you, uh, as you give us your word, that you actually demand that we think, that we use the minds that you've given us to think through, that you've never asked us to blindly obey. Even though you demand obedience, you also demand, Lord, that we be a thinking people, that you reason with us, you explain things to us. Uh, you want us to, to be, to be well-armed with uh, a sound mind in living life and enjoying the life you've given us. So, Father, we ask this morning as we continue to, to study the book of Matthew, that, Lord, that you will enlighten us and that, Father, you will show us the way and you will help us, Father, to continue to grow as believers and become more like your Son, Christ, in every way. We thank you and ask these things in his name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So again, let me read to you from the Old Testament to kind of give you the background of the issue that Jesus is dealing with. So in Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18, it says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then down in verse 33 of the same chapter, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So with that as the background, again, remember that what, when Jesus says, he says, you've heard it said, you shall love your enemy, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Number one, there is no actual statement in the Old Testament that says or reads that you should not hate your enemy. It's not in there. He mentions loving your neighbor, he talks about loving the foreigner, and when he says, you've heard it said, hate your enemy, that's the teaching of the rabbis. And we'll talk about that in just a moment, but that's what he's speaking against. What I think is interesting, just kind of, <coughs> kind of take a step back, is once again, there's this idea that's presented in the Word of God as to how we are to interact with Scripture. Every single thing is not laid out for us. There is not a sentence to cover every single issue that we may face in this generation or the next generation or the last generation. There is this idea that we're to take the truth of what the Word of God says and we are to think about it. 
We are to think about what it means and then think about what it might be implying. Think about how we are to um, apply these principles to our, to our life. What are these principles? You know, is it limited to just the simple words he said or does it go beyond that? And so that's what Jesus is doing that by his example here. But I think that there's behind that there is this uh, assumption that this is one of the ways we'll handle the word of God. That it, again, it's not just reading and then moving on, but there's this thinking process that goes on. So again, in the Old Testament, there is no actual statement where it reads, do not hate your enemy. Again, Leviticus 19.17 says, don't hate your neighbor. And again, verse 33 says, don't do wrong to a foreigner. In fact, you're to love the foreigner as you love yourself. And it's pretty strong stuff. So, but with all that, some, some of the rabbis taught that when it comes to your enemy, all bets are off. In fact, some Pharisees even implied that their hatred for their enemy was God's means of judging their enemy. And that's how they, that's how they dealt with that. So Jesus explains, no, all bets are not off. And this is the way. Matthew 5, verse 20. Once again, remember our, our base for all of these things. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So again, Jesus' point here is he's not saying that the Pharisees have zero righteousness. They do to a degree. No, they don't have a righteousness that can gain interest to heaven. They don't have a righteousness that somehow God owes them. But he wants the people to understand that the most righteous people you know of, the most religiously right people you know of, they're not good enough. The righteousness that you think they possess is not enough to make it to heaven. You must possess a righteousness that is beyond that. Of course, what we understand now, after the fact, is that righteousness is given to us by Christ. It's his righteousness. Because I cannot achieve the righteousness that I'm supposed to have as a follower of God. In Luke chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus says, But I say to you, who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, and bless, the, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. Romans 12, verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. So love for enemies and prayers for those who persecute you exhibit God's character, and it confirms that his disciples, which would be those of us who are believers, are sons and daughters of God. We are to emulate God. This is so it's not just, again, living in obedience to every letter that's in the Bible. That may be implied, but again, there's a greater demand. It's, it, if you think about it, it's, it is the way we normally raise our children, right? When you were raising your children, if you have kids at home, you are not able to give them commands covering every single aspect of life. And when sometimes they make a wrong decision, we will ask them, what were you thinking? I expect you to know better. I've never told you not to do this and this, but I expected you to figure that out at this age. Based on what? Based on our example, based on what we taught them. Right? So, for example, you may have never told your kid you shouldn't bully others. We expect them to know that. Is that an unreasonable expectation? No. Our children have brains. We expect them to use those brains, and we've given them enough information and guidance that they should understand that 
In fact, in most cases, we know they actually do know that. So it's the same idea, except now as adults or as human beings, that expectation is on us by God, our Father. You know, why are you doing that? I expect you to know better than this. Wait a minute, you're supposed to hate your enemies? Where, where did you get that from? I've given you my revelation in the Old Testament, and that's what you got out of it? You got out of it that you should hate your enemy? Please tell me how you came to that conclusion. So there's this rebuke that's built into the words of Jesus when he says these things. It's, it's mild uh, because he's teaching and explaining uh, and explains to, them, explains to them what he wants them to possess, which is, again, this righteousness that, that God gives us. But there's a rebuke nonetheless. So here's the example of God. That's what he's going to get into. How do we, so how do I know I'm not supposed to hate my enemies? Well, here's the setup. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That's, that's the premise. It's really very simple. You need to be like your Father in heaven. And one of the ways you're going to exhibit that is by loving your enemies or loving those who are your accusers or loving those who come against you. He follows this up with an illustration. He wants us to understand that God has exhibited this characteristic to all men. He says, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So in many uh, theological books, you'll come across this phrase or this wording or this subject is called common grace. And all that word is used for is to explain or, or it's used to talk about the goodness of God that God gives to all people, regardless of whether they're believers or not, whether they're rebelling against God or not. For, you know, the example he gives, we know that when you look at the world and you look at the crops that are grown, it's not only raining on the crops that are planted by Christians, right? It, it rains on everybody's crops, right? That's God's common grace is what that is. It is a goodness that comes from God towards all men, regardless of faith or even moral status. Again, mankind is totally depraved. Man deserves God's wrath. God mercifully postpones his destroying wrath, and he graciously blesses all men, even apart from salvation. Again, it's God's common grace. Common grace includes all undeserved blessings that the natural man receives from the hand of God. Rain, sun, prosperity, health, happiness, natural capacities and gifts, sin, being restrained um, from having complete dominion in your life or on the earth. The doctrine of common grace explains how a man can be totally depraved and still commit acts that are in some sense good or relatively good. That's common grace. It does fall short of salvific grace. That's just a fancy way of talking about God's grace and salvation. So it's not that, but all humans, because obviously all humans do, still need the saving work of the Spirit to reconcile them to God. So we then, in imitating our Father in heaven, are to show kindness to all, which includes those who are against us. That's what we are to do. So, obviously this may be a kind of a, 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 an obvious illustration, maybe even to the point of being ridiculous, but let's say there's somebody that you work with and you know that person actually hates you for whatever the reason. And they actively campaign against you. They want to make sure that you don't get a promotion. They want others not to like you, whatever. And you're driving home from work one day 
and they've been in a wreck. Hopefully you don't drive by and roll your window and say, good for you. You had that coming. I hope you suffer and drive on home. Hopefully what you'll do is you will pull over and do everything you can to, to give assistance. Why? Because you are a Christian. Now, the secular world will say, well, you should do it because you're a human being. But there's not much philosophical weight behind that. There is no philosophical reasoning why you should help anybody. But as a Christian, there is. And so we are to imitate our Father. So whether it's that or something else, uh, we need to show the goodness of God, show that we are actually rightly aligned with the Father, show that we're really Christians. In fact, I'm convinced that there are people that you know don't like you or they don't treat you well, and God is going to put you in situations where that individual could use your help. And he's doing that on purpose to give, not, it's, not, it's not to give you therapy. That's not what it's for. It's not, well, this is therapeutic for you so you can learn to deal with your anger. No, that's not what this is for. This is so God can be glorified. This is so you can reveal or you can display to them the goodness of God and the righteousness of God <coughs> Excuse me. that is being revealed or displayed in you in your treatment of them. And it can even be done if you have a rough marriage. You know, there are times that we don't get along with our partners very well. There may be times when you're going through the long argument. You know, the one where there's maybe silence or, you know, loathing for several days. You need to be kind to your partner because you are a Christian, period. We, we must do that. And so that's what he's getting at here. We need to be imitating our Father in heaven and show kindness. Jesus is making a comparison here to stress a point. In fact, the comparison he makes that we're going to get into in just a moment is intensified if you remember the general mindset of the culture in those days. Look at verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? The term tax collector, at that time, in that culture, there were two classifications of sinners that were considered the lowest of the low, prostitutes and tax collectors. That, that was the scum of the earth. And all of these righteous people understood that and acted accordingly. So it would be like this. For you to show love to those who love you, you're no better than a pedophile. Not about you, but that grates against my soul. I do not like that. How many of us think that we're better than a pedophile? Probably all of us. That's the scum of the earth, period. We can think of nothing worse than that. And so Jesus is making this point on purpose. That if the lowest of the low love those who love them, why are you thinking well of yourself because you love those who love you? There's nothing to brag about. It's just that's not a thing. That's what he wants them to understand. He's not saying it's a good thing to be a tax collector. I didn't say it wasn't a big deal to be a pedophile. All I'm saying is, if you love those who love you, you exactly haven't raised yourself above the rank of humanity. You're right on equal footing with, all, with the lowest of the low. That's where you're at. One commentator said this, this kind of love is called a mercenary love. 
It's a love that was exercised basically for personal benefit. That was it. I love others because they love me. I love others when they love me. I love others when it benefits me. That kind of thing. Jesus goes on to state that this kind of love is actually, it's more pagan than divine. He says, do not even the Gentiles do the same. So what that statement means, the word Gentile, when it's used in the, in the, in the scripture, is used in one of two ways. Sometimes the word Gentile is used just to refer to non-Jews. And that's the word that's used. And the context will help you with that. Other times, the word Gentile is representing something else. It's representing pagans, pagan ideology. So that's how it's being used here. So what he's telling these very religious Jews who believe that they are, because they are, worshiping the one true God, who have this very high moral standard and all the rest, he says, if you love those who love you, even idol-worshiping pagans are happy to give their best wishes to those who are like them. So once again, there's nothing to brag about there. You know, no one's standing in line trying to get rewards from God because they love those who love them or because they say Merry Christmas to the pagan who says Merry Christmas to you. Uh, you just haven't accomplished much. Then he follows that up with this in verse 48. He says, you therefore, in other words, because this is true, Here's the standard that you and I must strive for, that we must display. You must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What does he mean by that? Where the word perfect here means we are to be complete or fully developed. The idea is that we are to be mature. Okay, so again, when it comes to raising your kids, we expect our kids to be mature and to continue to grow in maturity. We have that expectation. If your 12-year-old throws a temper tantrum, they say, well, okay, you're displaying the behavior of a three-year-old. We expect you to, to not display the behavior of a three-year-old. I expect you to be much more mature than that. That would be a normal expectation, we would say. And then because they're our children, they do represent us, we have an expectation as to how our children are going to behave. I don't, that's not a wrong thing, by the way. It, when, when we don't, don't know that arrogance all right, it's not like, you know, well, because I'm the best, I want my kids to be the best. It's not that. But there should be this understanding that there's a level of maturity we are expecting from our children because they are our children. And so this is what God is saying. You represent me. I am not looking for people who can rise to the level of a pedophile. What I'm looking for is for those who are mature, those who are showing the significant difference of who I am and the difference I've made in your life. And the way you do that is when it comes to those who are against you or those who don't like you or your enemies, this is how I expect you to behave towards them. This is the righteousness that we must possess uh, if we want to enter into the kingdom of God. So the questions, again, that we have to ask ourselves are really very important. They're very simple. Often, when it comes to people that we may not like, for many, many Christians, that's actually a very short list. We don't have a long list of people that we don't like. Sometimes we may believe that nobody has anything against us, but usually that's not true. We just aren't aware of it. But we have to ask ourselves who it is that we are aware of that don't like us, or maybe we don't like them. We're, we're, we, would be, we would consider them at least in some level to be adversaries. No one else may know it because on the surface or in public, you treat them in a particular way. So I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it is fairly hypocritical. What God wants, again, remember, he wants true inner righteousness. 
He wants us to have the right attitude towards that individual. And so what we have to ask ourselves is, okay, so in my life, whether it's at work, certain acquaintances, in the neighborhood, maybe someone in the family, who is it I'd rather just not be around? We have to ask ourselves that. Then ask ourselves, so how have I, which you may not want to ask the question because the answer is going to be negative, how have I shown them the character of God in the way I treat them? And of course, we know we're not even thinking that way. So now we need to begin to think that way. What can I do? Now, you may not have an obvious, immediate ability or uh, in a circumstance where you're able to do that. It may be something that will come at another time, whether it's in a few weeks or a few months, because that's when you're going to cross paths with that person, which means you have time to pray and ask God to prepare your heart so that you then can purposely do something. And it may, in the beginning, it may be nothing more than just greeting them. Maybe you, just, maybe you just don't greet them. And we need to start greeting them. We need to start trying to you know, push that door open. I want to be their friend. Because they may not know this, but they need me. They need what I possess. They need that. And I don't know if God's brought another Christian in their life. But I know that I'm a Christian in their life. And I know that God has told me that he expects me to treat them a particular way. God desires to reveal his grace, perhaps show his grace, through me to that individual. It's a responsibility that I have. I have to answer to God for this. How am I going to do it? That, see, that kind of changes everything. This is not just where, yeah, you know, Bob preached a message today, we have to love our enemies, and I, I know I need to do that, and you go home and have lunch. All right, this is not just something you put in the back of your head. We're believers. God is interacting in your life on a regular basis. There are people that, you know, there's just a thing, there's some tension there. What are you going to do to alleviate? Not so there can be peace, but that's okay. We were to pursue that. But again, not because it's therapeutic for you. All right? It's not because you don't want their, your anger for them to dominate your life, though all those things would be true. No, it is so you then can be used by God in their life. Small way, big way, doesn't matter. That's, we'll let God take care of that. That is the application of the Word of God to our life. That is what we are to do as believers. When we come together and we read the Word of God together and we study the Word of God together and we think about the Word of God together, part of that, an intrinsic part of that, an important part of that is this, app, this, this part, the application part. Am I seeking to strive to be more like God, to grow in my faith? To grow in your faith is more than just understanding the nuances of what Jesus said here. That's good. But what's, what God is looking for is for you and me to apply these things, to be like his son, Jesus Christ. The climax of that, part of that is seen in two stories of Jesus. Number one, we'll probably say this again when we get to it, but you know when Jesus feeds the thousands of people? I'm sure you're aware that because of who Jesus is, he knows some of those people he's feeding are going to be screaming for his crucifixion. And I've said many times before, when Jesus said, divide the people up and have them sit down, I would have added the category. There's, see those three guys over there standing up? Yeah, they need to be sitting over there because they don't get enough food. 
I know what they're going to do later. I'm not going to feed them. Jesus didn't do that. When Jesus was being crucified and being nailed to the cross, remember that the pain he was going through was very real. It's extreme pain. It's the worst, one of the worst forms of death ever invented by man. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. Not sure I have the ability to say that. I'm not sure that in that moment when there's all that pain, after all the pain you've already experienced, that's what you're thinking. That the norm would be to be cussing them, wanting them to somehow, if I could get to them and make them feel this, that's what I want to do. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They, they have no idea what they're doing. That's the example that we're given. So I trust that this morning that hopefully someone here or some of you will be disturbed. You'll be disturbed because you know there's some people in your life that there's some tension there and you've just never paid any attention to it. And I pray that you would even feel some guilt. Not because I want you to feel guilty, but sometimes God uses guilt to move us towards righteousness, towards right acts. And pray that you will begin to ask the Lord to help you to find a way to be a positive influence in that person. And it can be pretty exciting to see the things that God can do through us if we but submit to what he says. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we bow before you this morning, again, we're grateful, Father, for your word. And Lord, we know that it's easy for all of us to assume that we already know that we are to love our enemies. We already understand the words and what it means. Not really sure how that applies to us because we think, oh, I have no enemies, and we move on in life. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us to abandon that kind of thinking. But, Lord, you will help us to search our souls. And perhaps, Lord, there may be some here who, who may not have attention with anyone. And for that, Father, we praise your name. But, Father, for many of us, and maybe it's most, there's, there's some people that kind of goes against the grain. And, Father, we ask that uh, you help us to realize the responsibility we have, first of all, to you, as well as our responsibility to them. And that it is possible that we are the only one that's even thinking about how can we reveal God the Father to them. Father, we know that in our lives, there were many that you used that revealed to us who you were and what you're like. And Father, we, we, we need to reciprocate that in the lives of others. So I pray, Lord, that it be the goal that we have here as believers this morning to want to glorify you. <clears throat> And Father, the best way we can do that, at least according to the passage this morning, is to love our enemies as we love ourselves. We thank you, Father, again for your common grace that all of us experience on a regular basis. And even our non-believing friends experience on a regular basis. Perhaps, Father, that will be used as an example in our life. Perhaps it's something we can use in discussion that helps us to understand your goodness. Forgive us, Father, for our wrongdoing. Forgive us for, at times, ignoring perhaps what may be obvious. Give us the strength we need to do what's right. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, we're going to stand in just a moment to sing the song that's on page 8. If you are not a believer, I just want to remind you that when it comes to thinking about life and thinking about the good things that have happened to you, remember that God is not the God of Christians only. That God is not the God who only blesses Christians. 
He does that, and we're all very grateful for that. But though, for those who are non-believers, God has blessed you as well. Your ability to think, your athletic ability, your artistic abilities, um, maybe the home that you were raised in, the fact that you've you know, been able to eat every day, uh, you've been in a place that's warm when it's cold and cool when it's hot. All those things are from God. All those things are expressions of his goodness to you. And I trust that, you're, that you will think about that for a while and ask God to reveal himself to you and help you understand that it is truly grace because we don't deserve those things. Because we have rebelled against God. We don't even want to acknowledge him. And that along the way we'll recognize that, you know what? God really is behind all these things. And I, and I need to be reconciled to him because he is the giver of my life and all that I have. And it's my sin that has separated myself from him. And God is willing to forgive. He asks that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done.